is the Holy Spirit. Does he speak in tongues? Does he baptize? Is he charismatic? Is he Pentecostal? Is he a person? fine you doing good I hope you do because we are up for a great evening you know I was very excited when I saw that I get to preach one of the messages of this Holy Spirit series I don't know about you but I think this series is really a game-changer for our church for you personally for me personally uh, we had so many people um, just writing and telling us how much they needed this series, you know, like to, to, to just tap into what the Holy Spirit has in store for us. And uh, it's so great to see that there's so much happening. And so I was very excited. I just had a second of concern when I saw what the actual topic of tonight's message was. And the topic tonight is the Holy Spirit baptizes. And the reason why I had a moment of concern is because obviously over the last hundred of years, this was or is still one of the most controversial topics theologically. So theologians are really fighting on this topic. Is there a baptism of the Holy Spirit? And this is really dividing the charismatics and the more conservative side of the church. And there's a big and deep abyss between the two sides. <laughs> so, well, you know, on the other hand, I thought it's kind of a home run for me because... I grew up in a Pentecostal church. The first 30 years of my life, I grew up in a traditional Pentecostal church. So I really don't have any fear of contact with the Holy Spirit. And when I was a teenager, I saw so many things happening through and with the Holy Spirit. I'm not scared at all. I just uh, have, have seen a lot. And uh, so I'm, I'm not scared of what the Holy Spirit uh, is doing. And on the other side, you know, ICF, this church ICF and the ICF church movement is not affiliated to a specific denomination. I guess you, you know that. We're not part of a denomination, but still ICF has not evolved or grown out of nowhere. It's not just being here and there's, there's some roots to what you experience here at ICF. And these roots can be found in the Holy Spirit awakening of the last century. The last century is called the century of the Holy Spirit. And I call it a kind of a reformation of the Holy Spirit that happened 100 years ago. And we are still drawing from what happened 100 years ago. So I thought to start my message, I want to talk a couple of minutes on our heritage, because I think it's important to know our roots, to know where we're coming from, because it's so easy to forget it, and we just go through the motions, and we don't realize why we are like we are, why we believe what we believe, and it's grounded in a great awakening of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the 20th century. It actually started at the end of the 19th century. In the late 90s of the 19th century, there was a, a Catholic sister. Her name was Elena uh, Guerra. Uh, she is called the Apostle of the Holy Spirit. 
And you see it on this picture with a dove as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. She wrote a letter to Pope Leo XIII. He was the Pope at that time. And I think he's looking quite like our Leo here, our Pope. Now, Leo XIII was Pope at that time. And so Elena Gera wrote him a letter asking him to consider to give the Holy Spirit more room within the church, the Catholic Church. And she told him, why not start a novene prayer? Novene prayer means a nine days prayer on a specific topic. And so she asked him to start this novene prayer on the Holy Spirit to give more room to the Holy Spirit worldwide through the church. And so Pope Leo XIII, he didn't just take the letter and think, what's that lady? He actually took that seriously. And more than that, on the first day of the 20th century, on January 1st, 1901, Pope Leo XIII prayed a prayer asking for the Holy Spirit. You lost me somehow. Is it possible? You lost me? Oh, I'm there. Woo! Hide and seek. You never know what happens when you preach on the Holy Spirit. And so on the 1st of January, 1901, he prayed a prayer asking the Holy Spirit to send renewal in the church and the world. On the same day, in Kansas, USA, there was a group of students, about 100 students, in a Bible college of a man called Charles Parham. They were studying the Acts of the Apostle. And so they were reading how the Holy Spirit was outpouring power and fire and speaking in tongues. And so they thought, why not pray, lay hands, and expect the Holy Spirit to fall down? And this happened on the first day of the 20th century. And they experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. They started speaking in, tong in tongues. They, they got the, the gift of prophecy and, and, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so over the next couple of weeks and months, more and more of these students experienced this spiritual awakening. And so more and more they were traveling around America telling about what they experienced at this Bible college. Four years later, a black pastor called William Seymour went to Parham's Bible College to see, to experience actually what happened there. He, he went back to Los Angeles. He took over a church at a street named Azusa Street. And over the next couple of months, they experienced a tremendous spiritual awakening. You see it here on this picture. They made it into the newspaper. Pentecost has come. They had daily services, and the room was too big to contain the people, so they had to, to set up tents, and they had daily meetings where people got saved, they believed in Jesus, and they experienced baptism in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, like the story in Acts. And this story spread across America, and out of what happened at Azusa Street at the beginning of the 20th century, the Pentecostal charismatic movement was born. And did you know that today, one-third of the Christians in the world are part of this Pentecostal charismatic movement? We're talking about 800 million Christians, and there's 2.3 billion Christians in the world today, so when you count each one of them. 
So we see that within 100 years, through this outpouring of the Spirit, there was a tremendous growth happening. And so research, they, they, they say there's, there's a Pentecostalization of Christianity happening in this world. That's an amazing word to say. But they just say that what happened at the beginning of last century has changed the face of the earth and changed Christianity. And what was the original thing? A simple prayer. Holy Spirit, come with power and revive our hearts, revive our church, revive our world. And as I said, ICF, and it's interesting to, to, to know that Leo also comes out of the Catholic Church and he comes out of this charismatic side of the Catholic Church and out of that ICF evolves. So this is our heritage. And so when I'm, when I'm saying that, of course, you, may, you might be saying, okay, I mean, that's kind of spooky happening in America and so on. But I'm theologian enough to know that I need to convince you with biblical truth. And so what I want to do over the next couple of minutes, I want to take you into the Bible and show you, is the Holy Spirit baptizing? And if he is, how is he baptizing? Are you ready for that? I believe the Bible is teaching us there's three different baptisms. So the first two are not disputed, so you can, you can keep relaxed for the next couple of minutes. When we come to the third you might be a bit nervous, but you'll get over it. The first baptism that the, uh, that the Bible is telling us about is the following. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit baptizes, baptizes us in Jesus. That's the first thing. We call this salvation. I think we all agree that when you get saved, when you give your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and takes room in you, in your life. It, it lives in you from that moment on. We, we read that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says there, we were all baptized by, oh, is it working? By one Holy Spirit into one body or one body of Christ. If you take the verse before, it's talking about we're all one body of Christ and the Holy Spirit baptizes us into this body. So that's what this verse says. We are all, all that we have accepted Jesus as our Savior, the Holy Spirit has baptized us in Jesus. So that's the first bap baptism. I'll take a, a verse out of Romans to make it clear what it says with this baptizing into Jesus. Romans 8 verse 9 says the following, But your sinful nature does not control you. The Holy Spirit controls you. The Spirit of God lives in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So what it says here is if you don't have the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of God in you, you're not saved. So this is what happens when you get saved. And what does this Spirit that comes into us when we get saved? We read that in Romans 8.15. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption of to sonship. And by 
Him we cry, Abba, Father. You know, when, when you experience the first bap baptism, when you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, what changes is that you come into right position. There's a change of position. It's from the sinful position to the righteous position because the blood of Jesus cleanses you from sin. And so you are accepted into his family. Your relationship to God has been restored. That's why you can cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father means loving Father, accepting Father. That's what you can say when your position has been reinstalled into relationship with God. And what it says at the end of this verse is significant, is said there, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's what the children is doing in this first baptism. It comes into you and it testifies that you are saved. I don't know how it is with you tonight. I don't know every one of you. Maybe you're sitting here and you're not quite sure that you made your peace with Jesus that you made your peace with God. Maybe you have never ac accepted Jesus as, as Lord and Savior. That's what we call this Holy Spirit testifies so that you know that you know that you know you're a son and a daughter of this God. And so if you're sitting here and you're not sure about that, I will give you an opportunity tonight before we end this service to make this most important decision. Step number one, salvation, baptizing through the Holy Spirit, into Jesus. There's a second baptism. Difficult words. The disciples, the dis, oh, disciple, disciple baptize in water. I think this is no brain. We all know that. This is the second baptism. The water baptism. The Bible is clear on that. I read you the verse in Matthew 28, 19. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we see there's a godly order. First, the Holy Spirit baptizes you in Jesus. There's a new position. And then you leave your old self behind. You draw it, draw, it's, it's drowning the water. You leave it there and you move on. That's what water baptism is doing. So you, you, you leave the, the old self behind. And water baptism is a sign, but it's more than a sign. I need to make sure tonight that you understand Water baptism is not a requirement to get saved. You know, when Jesus hung on the cross and there were these two thieves left and right from him, and one accepted him as a savior, he didn't come down from his cross, got baptized, went back up on his cross and then up to heaven. So step number one is enough to get saved, to go to heaven. So, water baptism is not a requirement, but let me tell you, you're in need of it. Because don't underestimate the power of this sign. Because when you declare before the natural,
and the supernatural world, that you leave your old self behind and you're stepping into a new life, something happens in the supernatural. Don't underestimate that. I, I, I often say that when we do altar calls and I ask people to come to the front, lots of people tell me, you know, but I could just stay seated and God knows my heart and if I want to get saved, he will, he will know without walking to the front. Of course he will. But don't underestimate the steps you're doing in the natural, what they can do for you in the supernatural. Because it's, it's releasing something. And so it's important for me uh, that you understand water baptism is important. And I, uh, what I see in our generation, or uh, maybe here in Switzerland, we're a little bit lazy with water baptism. You know, first step is okay, we get saved, but then water baptism, yeah, you know, maybe if the water is warm enough, if I don't have to wear funny clothing to go into the water, I might do it sometimes when I feel the time has come for me to get baptized. Why? If you read the Bible, it was just clear, you get saved, and then there's water baptism. Why? Because after the new position, you leave the old self behind and you move on. You know, that's this picture, Old Testament picture of the people of God. They came out of Egypt, they came through the Red Sea, and there their enemies died in the sea. And they moved on and they didn't go back to Egypt. And that's exactly what you do when you get water baptized. You leave your old self behind and you move on. And let me just tell you one, one small thing. If you have been baptized as a child and you got saved afterwards, get baptized again. You know why? Because I think there's a godly order. And the godly order is not here just because God wants us to do everything right. Godly order releases life into our lives. And so it's important that we understand the godly orders in his Bible and that we obey godly orders. And it will set you free and it will give you life. So I'll just say that uh, and, and I'll tell you we have water baptisms on the 1st of October. So we are ready to baptize everyone. Björn is ready. He trained. He has his swimming lessons. So he won't draw, <laughs> he will bring you back up. But just you, not your old self. Now, let's talk about the third baptism, and this is the one that makes people nervous. But interestingly, even the people who say there's only one baptism, like Ephesians 4 says, one baptism, they believe in two, because they believe in the first and the second. So even people who tell you there's just one baptism, they believe at least in two baptisms. And the third is the following. Jesus, Jesus baptizes us with or in the Holy Spirit. With, in is a preposition, so you can, they're interchangeable. Um, so what it says here, Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. That's the third step. Did you know that there's only five things that are 
mentioned in all four Gospels. The birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, that's the most important thing. That's the Gospel in a nutshell. Then the feeding of the 5,000 is mentioned in all four Gospels. I think this is a key to the blessed life. And the fourth thing is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. is mentioned in all four Gospels. And you know, if something is mentioned a couple of times, it's probably important. I know that as a parent. I'm telling my children always the same things. Doesn't always help. But at least I make it important for them so they hear it, they hear it, they hear it, they hear it. And so in the Bible, there's different topics, also in the Acts of the Apostle, that you see a couple of times. And as every time when you have repetition in the Bible, you have to open your ears and your eyes because it might be important for you. So I take you to one of these um, Bible passages where it's talking about the third baptism. It's in Matthew 3:11. It says there, "I baptize you with water for repentance." This is um, John the Baptist who's saying this. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. And now listen, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So it says here, he, talking about Jesus the Messiah, will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And so you might be theologically, you might have a different perspective on, on this, but I'm telling you, it's more about grammar than it is about theology. Because baptizing one and three, it's two different subjects. In the first one, it's the Holy Spirit baptizing us in Jesus. In the third baptism, it's, the, it's Jesus baptizing us with the Holy Spirit. So it can't be the same. So even people who dispute that and say there's just one baptism, you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes in you, basta. Check your grammar. It's two different things. Here it says, He, the Messiah, will baptize you. In the Holy Spirit. So people might object and say, okay, but this is just for the disciples. You know what? The disciples were called in Matthew 4. Here we're talking Matthew 3. So the disciples were not called yet when John the Baptist said that. So when he says, you guys, he's, he's saying this to us. There's, there's a second objection where people say, okay, this is talking about Pentecost in Acts 2. You know, where, where, where they were waiting on the Holy Spirit and then the fire came, but that was one in a lifetime and it will never happen again. What I say to the people who say this, there's four different places in Acts of the Apostle where the Holy Spirit baptizes people. And there's always the same order. First, people get saved, they get water baptized, and then through the laying of hands, the Holy Spirit falls and they start speaking in tongues. Four different places. Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. And you know what the interesting thing is? It didn't just happen around Pentecost. Acts 2 is Pentecost. Acts 8 is five years after Pentecost. Acts 10 is 10 years after Pentecost. Act 19 is 25 years after Pentecost. Still the same procedure. 
So don't tell me this was a one-off thing. It happened over and over again. And every time there was this order, first, salvation, right position, second, water baptism, I let, I'm leaving the old self behind, and third, you get power to walk into the new. I'll tell you to this passage in Acts 19. So you see what happens there, and it's Paul. It's Paul who is protagonist in this story. You must know Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, more than anyone else. No other theologian after Paul wrote more of the New Testament. Do we agree on that? So Paul knew his theology, because our theology is based on most of it, on Paul's theology. So we have here Acts 19, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. So it's 25 years after Pentecost. There he found some disciples, or other translations say found some believers, and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, why would Paul ask this question? Does he know about theology? I mean, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Of course they did. That's step number one. That's no brain. You get saved. The Holy Spirit testifies that you are a child of God. So, of course, they receive the Holy Spirit. But that's not the thing that he is referring to here. Their answer is no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That's something that some people might have experienced growing up in a church where Holy Spirit was somewhere at the back door. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So we see this pattern in different places in the Acts of Apostle. And as I told at the beginning of the message, at the beginning of the 20th century, and throughout church history, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has started many awakenings. I just want to say a couple of words on speaking in tongues, because I know this is one of the topics that lots of people wrestle with. The speaking in tongues will be topic next Sunday, so I don't want to say too much today, but we see in the Acts of the Apostle, every time that the Holy Spirit baptized people, there was evidence in speaking in tongues. Every time. It was a sign that they got baptized by the Holy Spirit. I think, as I said, speaking in tongues is not a requirement. I don't think this has to happen every time the Holy Spirit baptizes, but I believe it's a significant thing as a sign. Why? Because James 3, 7 says the following about our tongue. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by man mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
So we can't even tame our own tongue. So when the Holy Spirit baptizes you, fully immersed, that means you, you just let go every pride, you let go every fear, everything. Then the sign of the speaking in tongue is that God is controlling something that not even you can control. So this is the sign. We'll talk next Sunday on why it's important that we're speaking in tongue because it's for our edification. It's something that you need. You're in need of it, but it's not a requirement. As I said, the only requirement that is needed is step one, that you get saved, that Jesus becomes Lord of your life. You don't need step two. You don't need step three to go to heaven. The question is, why wouldn't you step into what God wants to give you? There's more. I think there's more than what we experience. God wants to give us power through his Holy Spirit. And I talked about this godly order. And I want to finish my message in showing you that this godly order is already found in the Old Testament. Because, you know, God is not changing his mind. When he has a godly order that he wants his people to understand, you will find it in different places in the Bible. And so what you see here is the tabernacle, or you see it on the picture. The tabernacle was the tent that was set up in the middle of the people of God when they were in the desert, and God was living in there. So God's decision was, I want my presence to be in the middle of my people. And so in this tent, there was the holies of holies, and there God dwelt. His presence dwelt. And the only ones who could go into this tent or into this uh, tabernacle were the priests. They were mediator between God and the people, and they were the one entering into the presence of God to mediate between God and the people. This has changed, of course, today. We are all able to go directly into the presence of God. And this is our goal. This is still today. Our goal is to be able to enter into God's presence. But when the priest got ready to go in there, they had an order to follow. So when you first entered the tabernacle, there was an altar, an altar with burnt offering. So what you did there, there was a fire and you sacrificed uh, animals and the blood of the lamb was there to, 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 for the forgiveness of sins, for their own sins and the sins of the people. So this was the first step. It was the altar, the altar of the burnt offering. So you see step number one. Then on the second, there was, you see there, there was a water jar. And what the priests had to do, they had to do their washings. They had to do these washing rituals that made them ready, holy, to enter into the holy place. Water baptism. And then before they entered into the holy place, there was a flask of oil. And what they had to do is sprinkle themselves with this oil as a sign of cleansing of holiness and you know oil in the Bible is always a sign of the Holy Spirit and so after they went through these three steps they entered through 
the veil into the holy place. But you know what? If the priest didn't follow the godly order, they died in there. They died in the presence of God. And what I feel today when I talk with Christians, people that have been in church for years, step one and step two, I mean step one, okay. Step two, well, it depends on water temperature. But we're still okay with water baptism. But what I feel is that lots of people, because maybe they had strange experiences, they heard stories of people uh, that, that did crazy things when the Holy Spirit fell on a place, whatever your experience is, I, I see lots of people, they, they, they kind of go around the third thing, just leave it there, and they enter the holy place. They, they, they enter into the presence of God, and they realize it's kind of dead. I mean, I've done it. I mean, I'm saved. I'm a child of God. I've even had my water baptism, but I kind of feel that my faith is, is dead. I'm fighting always over the same things. I'm not feeling like an overcomer, like someone who is overcoming things in his life. It feels like dry. It feels dead. Could it be that this third step is something that you need to live a life into God's purposes? I think too many people live just to live through the motions. We live our Christianity, we go to church, we even go into a small group. We're the good Christians. We even serve in church. I mean, we're the four-star generals doing all the right things. But still, when it comes to overcoming in life, when it comes to addiction, when it comes to, 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 to stuff that, that, that happens in our life, it feels like our faith is not working. It feels like our prayers are somehow evading somewhere. You know, through, I said at the beginning, I, I believe this, this series is a game changer. I believe this series has the potential to change you forever and change our church. Because I think it's so crucial that we understand there's more. There's more in store for us. The Holy Spirit wants to baptize us, means to fill us fully. And when I was preparing this message, I felt that what, what keeps us back from that, that we're holding back, is fear and pride. It's fear and pride. We fear what could happen. And we've, we, our fear is that the Holy Spirit might do things with us that we don't like. Relax, it says there. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It's not some kind of weird person doing that. It's Jesus. The Jesus that you have accepted as your Lord and Savior, who died on this cross for you, He wants to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So why do you think He will do things with you that you don't want? What He wants is for you to live the fullness of life that He has in store for you. 
Manchmal frage ich mich, wenn alles andere versagt und zerbricht, was bleibt zurück? Warum sind wir von überall hierher gekommen? Weil am Ende vom Tag nichts anderes Bestand hat. Wie würde das aussehen? Was wären die Konsequenzen von etwas so Radikalem? Wie würde es aussehen, Jesus tatsächlich zu folgen? Freundschaften können zerbrechen, Karriere vergehen und am Ende wird Reichtum wertlos. Er weckt einen Durst für Wahrheit, Mitgefühl und Liebe, den nichts auf dieser Welt jemals löschen kann. Worauf können wir also wirklich unser Leben, unsere Hoffnung bauen? Es gibt nur die einzige Sache, wenn alles gesagt und getan ist. Er allein ist unser Fels, unsere Mitte und unser Fundament.